This episode of WISE contains discussions of rape and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Throughout the ages, humankind has told stories of men battling monsters. These battles are usually won by a strong and courageous archetypal hero, although underdogs have been known to defeat their fair share of monsters as well. Sometimes, monsters are evil fiends threatening people and property. Sometimes, monsters are considered a threat simply for existing within the orbit of humans. And sometimes, battles with monsters are sought out as a task for completion to further a hero's journey. We are usually meant to side with the hero, taught from an early age that heroes are good guys and monsters are something to be feared. But we don't always feel that way, do we? Sometimes we hear a story of hero praise that just doesn't quite sit right with us. A myth that makes the monster look less like a monster and more like a victim. A story like the one of Medusa. Polydectes was king of the island of Seraphos in Greece. His brother Dictus rescued a woman named Danae and her son Perseus, who had washed ashore on the island. Dictus was a kind man, and as an act of charity, he took them in. After many years had passed, Polydectes fell victim to the weakness of many men love. He was taken with Danae and wished to marry her. Well, depending on who you ask anyway. Some versions of the story say that Polydectes was attempting to marry Danae by force, in which case he fell victim to another weakness of many men, lust. Whether love or lust, there was only one problem. Perseus could see Polydectes was a wicked man and, ever protective of his mother, did not approve of the pairing. Polydectes knew he would have to get rid of Perseus in order to marry Danae, so he came up with a plan. Polydectes threw a banquet under the guise of honoring the upcoming marriage of a woman named Hippodamia, who was known for her love and taming of horses. And so Polydectes required all guests to bring a gift of horses to the banquet. Polydectes knew Perseus did not own any horses, but having known the young man for many years at this point, also knew that Perseus, young and chivalrous, would want to offer a gift of some kind. Perseus, having no horse to give, told the king that he would bring any other gift he desired. And so, Polydectes, seeing his plan take shape, asked for the head of Medusa. Medusa, whose name means to guard or to protect, was one of the creatures called the Gorgons. The other Gorgons were her two sisters, Euryale, whose name means wide-stepping or wide-leaping, and Stheno, meaning strong or mighty. The Gorgons were daughters of the ancient sea deities Phorcus and Keto, and while Euryale and Stheno were immortal, Medusa was not. She was the only mortal child of the deities. The Gorgons were hideous creatures, described in early renditions as having scaly skin, golden wings, 
bronze hands, tusk-like teeth, long lolling tongues, and hair made of snakes. Medusa had the ability to turn men to stone with just her gaze. Uriele is also said by some to have had this ability, but was mainly known for her bellowing, mournful cry. Steno was known as the most strong and independent of the sisters. In later retellings, the Gorgons are described as beautiful women whose only abnormal attribute is scaly skin, using their feminine wiles to seduce men into looking at them, turning them to stone and killing them. Obviously, no man had ever defeated Medusa, and Polydectes, knowing this, sent Perseus on what should have been an ill-fated journey. As is common in Greek mythology, Perseus was a demigod, fathered by Zeus. On this journey, Perseus received divine assistance since he was favored by the gods. Athena gave Perseus a shield and the knowledge of the only way to defeat Medusa. Hermes gave his winged sandals. Hades gave his cap of invisibility. And Hephaestus provided a sword. After the gods' assistance in finding the Gorgon's lair, Perseus found them all asleep. He used the shield given to him by Athena to look at the reflection of the sleeping Medusa and cut off her head. As blood poured from Medusa, her two children were born from her neck. The children had been fathered by Poseidon and were named Chryseor, who was a golden giant, and Pegasus, a winged horse who would go on to follow Perseus on other journeys. Even after death, Medusa's head maintained the power to turn men to stone, and so Perseus wrapped it in a sack to return it to the king. Medusa's gorgon sisters, Euryale and Stheno, were awoken by the disturbance and attempted to avenge Medusa, but were unable to catch Perseus, and he escaped with Medusa's head, leaving her sisters behind to grieve her death. It is rumored that the pained wails from the gorgons at the loss of their sister inspired Athena to create the Aulos, a type of double-piped flute. In one retelling of this myth, Athena was playing the flute, but stopped when she saw in her own reflection that her face was becoming disfigured. In successfully recreating the sounds of the sisters' wails, she had created an instrument that would cause the person playing it to take on the grotesque physical attributes of the Gorgons. So Perseus set out with his prize, intending to return to Seraphos. On the way, he passed by the kingdom of King Cepheus and Queen Cassiopeia in Ethiopia, which was under assault by a sea creature belonging to Poseidon. Perseus, ever the hero, stopped and helped the kingdom, saving everyone in it and winning the hand of Princess Andromeda. Andromeda was already betrothed, but Perseus was able to remedy this issue with the help of Medusa's head, successfully killing the man betrothed to Andromeda. Perseus set back out on his journey to return to Seraphos, encountering the Titan Atlas along the way. A quarrel broke out between the two after Perseus requested a place to rest, and Atlas refused. Perseus was well aware he would not be able to defeat the Titan in a fight, and so again, Perseus used the head of Medusa to kill his adversary, creating the Atlas Mountains in doing so. It has also been said that while passing over Libya, a few drops of Medusa's blood fell to the earth, immediately turning into snakes 
and becoming the ancestors of all snakes in Libya. After these unexpected trials, Perseus returned to Seraphos, likely to the surprise of Polydectes and probably everyone else. Danae was safe, but Perseus was angry that he had been tricked. He used Medusa's head to turn Polydectes and his court to stone. Perseus appointed Dictus as the ruler of Seraphos and gifted Medusa's head to Athena, who set the head into her shield. Because of this, Medusa's head was used as an apotropaic talisman, warding off evil and adorning a variety of items throughout the ancient world, including shields, armor, pottery, and roof tiles. Even in modern times, Medusa is recognizable and has made appearances in everything from art to video games. She even has a facial piercing named after her. You could even call Medusa iconic, most notably as the logo for Versace. But next time you see the Versace Medusa, take a close look. You might be surprised to see that she has a beautiful, youthful face and a full head of curly hair. You see, Medusa wasn't always a monster, and the story that I've been telling isn't Medusa's story at all. Medusa's story actually starts before the Perseus myth, in a temple to the goddess Athena. Medusa was a young maiden, an anomaly as the only mortal of her family, and an enviable beauty, with some calling her hair the greatest of all of her charms. Many took notice of her great beauty, finding her desirable, and none more so than Poseidon, the god of the sea. One day, Medusa was worshipping in Athena's temple, paying respects to the virginal goddess. In some versions of Medusa's story, it also is noted that she was an attendant of the temple. While Medusa worshipped, Poseidon decided to do what many of the gods were known for. He took what he wanted. Poseidon raped Medusa on the steps of the temple, angering Athena. Athena, a goddess known for her virtue and chastity, was outraged by such desecration occurring in her own temple. As punishment for the violation and seeing no wrong done by Poseidon, Athena turned Medusa into the dreadful monster that we know her as, a mess of phallic snakes replacing her once-praised hair. Uriele and Stheno stood up for their sister, incurring the wrath of Athena and also being transformed into monsters. Some say that Athena was secretly jealous of Medusa's beauty, and the desecration of the temple was the perfect excuse to steal it from her. It's difficult to fathom a woman using such an abuse against another as an excuse to exact such cruel and capricious revenge on someone innocent of both her own physical appearance and her assault. Well, maybe it isn't so difficult to fathom when you consider that if there's one word you could use to encompass all of the Greek gods, it would be fickle. And this treatment of Medusa really isn't so far-fetched when you think about it. After all, we live in a world where sexual assault victims of all genders are shamed and ostracized for the actions of another person against them, while predators get a slap on the wrist. Their positive attributes and accomplishments make front-page news. The argument has also been made that Athena changed Medusa in order to protect her 
stealing her beauty to prevent men from desiring her ever again, and giving her the ability to kill men with her hideous face. Personally, I find this explanation difficult to believe since Athena was an active participant in helping Perseus find and kill Medusa. And honestly, is this reasoning behind Athena's actions better than jealousy? This reinforces the ideology that victims should change something about themselves to prevent more attacks. It reinforces victim-blaming, the idea that if a survivor of an attack would just dress differently— act differently, spend time in different places, that they would be safe. It reinforces that predators are not to blame for their actions, that something a victim did caused them to become a predator. I guess Athena was ignoring the fact that Medusa was in her temple, worshipping Athena, goddess of purity and wisdom, and Medusa's only wrongdoing was being there when Poseidon decided to attack her. But... I digress. Clearly we're stuck a few thousand years in the past if so little has changed since Medusa's time. So, let's give Athena the benefit of the doubt here and assume that she did do this for the protection of Medusa, somehow not recognizing the backward intention of her actions. Where does this leave us for the rest of the story? It's worth noting that Medusa's story becomes Perseus's story a man who victimized her again, except this time taking advantage of her mortality, seeking her out in her own home while she slept for the sole purpose of killing her. After being turned into a monster, Medusa and her sisters had been exiled to a faraway cave. It's unclear if this exile was chosen for them or self-imposed, but either way, they lost their home and the protection of the goddess as a result of the events. The cave of the Gorgons was not a place of great treasures or secrets, and anyone entering it was there for one reason, to attack the inhabitants. And in that cave, Medusa resided until the day she was killed in her sleep by a man on a hero's quest. The use of snakes in this myth is interesting because... While in Western society, we often view snakes as symbols of evil, death, and destruction, thanks to the snake in the Garden of Eden, but the ancient Greeks viewed snakes differently. In ancient Greece, snakes were often seen as symbols of fertility due to their phallic appearance, but they were also seen as symbols of transformation and healing. The god of medicine, Asclepius, carried a caduceus, which you likely have seen. It is the modern symbol of physicians, a staff with two snakes intertwined around it. Snakes shedding their skin was symbolic to the Greeks, being viewed as a rebirth of sorts. The ancient Greeks carried the belief that snakes would eat themselves and then be reborn anew, free of the scars of the previous life. This belief led to another symbol you likely have seen, the Ouroboros. The symbol is simply a snake in a circle biting its own tail. Whether viewing Medusa as an innocent woman unwillingly dominated by a man, or a powerful woman defeated by a man, her story becomes allegorical, showing the centuries-long patriarchal domination of women and intentional subversion of women's power. Even today, this attempt at domination can be seen in strong modern women having their faces transposed onto Medusa's body. 
Hillary Clinton, Angela Merkel, even Queen Elizabeth have all been subjected to this. In Hillary Clinton's case, her decapitated Medusa head is being held by Perseus, a picture of Donald Trump transposed onto his face. After her death, Medusa continued to be used, her head becoming Perseus's and then Athena's weapon. This further exemplifies the real takeaway from this myth. Medusa had no agency over her body or her fate. She was simply prey, a quarry to be captured and used for various purposes by various people. She is reduced to a monster, a plot device, a woman daring to exist in a man's world. Although, she also represents fear of the female form. As a human, her body is temptation. As a monster, her body is powerful and dangerous, something to be destroyed. It's very telling that in every version of both Medusa and Perseus's stories, Medusa never speaks, almost as if she is a prop. She's the central part of both stories, and yet in both, she is silent. But even though the myth doesn't allow Medusa to speak, she has not been silenced. Some choose to see her as a statement made stronger by her pain. She is dynamic, experiencing a kind of rebirth as a powerful presence, a new life after trauma. Even after death, she is an imposing force, feared and respected by all. Medusa's voice is her body. She embraces her anger and courage, growing in power to a point that others fear her abilities and feel the need to try and cut her down, even then failing to steal her strength. In this myth, there are many monsters, but Medusa isn't one of them. If you or someone you know is a survivor of rape and sexual assault, please reach out to Rain, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, at 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. You can also visit their website, www.rainn.org, where they have additional resources for Asian, Native American, and Pacific Islanders, people of color, children, indigenous people, immigrants, the LGBTQ community, victims of stalking, military members, men, women, and many other resources.